Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Collaborative Edges, conversations to inspire initiatives across languages and cultures. I'm Rocio Quispe Añali at Michigan State University and the host of Collaborative Edges. In this podcast, we continue our conversations about the 2020 MSU Latinx Film Festival. We have in the studio Scott Beam, professor of Spanish at Michigan State University and the director of the MSU Latinx Festival, award-winning filmmaker Paul Espinosa and director of Singing Our Way to Freedom, and Osvaldo Ozzi Rivera, legendary Detroit activist, educator, and percussionist whose band Reconstruction plays at the MSU Residential College of Arts and Letters Theater tonight. Welcome to Michigan and to this podcast. Bienvenidos, Scott, Paul, and Ozzy. Hello. Yeah, hello. Thanks. Great to be here. And thanks for having us we, back. Yeah, appreciate being here. Oh, I, I, I love these conversations. So let's start with just a, a quick review of what is going on these days. Scott, having introduced our guests, um, uh, I would like uh, to know if uh, there is any uh, updates or anything new happen hap happening uh, in the uh, Latinx Film Festival uh, since it has started uh, last Wednesday. Yeah, thank you. Um, we do have a, a couple of updates. Uh, one, one important one, really. We've, we got off to a great start. Uh, we had a wonderful program in the library, as he was actually with us for most of it. Um, a phenomenal turnout for uh, John Valadez's film and a great discussion. And the VR and, and 360 degree video experiences were, were really great. Um, the, the one snag we had was at the opening reception, if you were there. So we had technical difficulties at the Broad. Uh, so we were unable to screen Marielle and Monica, uh, which I know was disappointing for me uh, and for also for many people who were there. I was able to manage, I have managed to find a spot in the program to screen that film on Saturday at 1 p.m. at the Lansing Public Media Center. Um, and also to make it up to our audience, we have another short film from the same director called Middle Earth, which focuses on uh, environmental issues uh, globally and particularly in the Amazon. Um, so it'll be fantastic. It's going to follow the screening of The Candidate, um, which is being sponsored by Action of Greater Lansing. So we're going to tie this screening into that. And the, the films are, are very much related um, because The Candidate is a political satire that resonates with uh, political issues here, but also in Brazil and, and Bolsonaro. So it's a good good setup, and there'll be a good conversation to contextualize the, the encore screening of the film we tried to screen at the opening. So that's the most important update for Yes, and for this listeners. information will be or it, is already It's already the up web on the website. Site. There's a Facebook event uh, that's already up, so please, we'll, we'll continue to get the word out, but please come to that. It's also, I should say, a massive screen and sound system. So even if you've seen it before, uh, it's a different experience. Good. So, Scott, I, um, I pass you the mic now, and you will be leading the conversation with Paula and Ossi. Go sure. ahead. Thanks so much. And thanks for giving us this space once again with you. We really appreciate it. Um, so, Paul, let, let, we'll start with you. Um, so we were just talking, and, and you, you know that I spent about eight years in San Diego and live very close to Barrio Logan and Chicano Park. These are places that will appear in the film and are really important. Um, so I was, I was familiar with the subject matter of your film, Singing Our Way to Freedom, but for people here in Michigan, that, that may not be the case. So uh, Chicago Park might not mean anything to them. Uh, and, and I just would like to hear you talk a little bit about the film and why you wanted to tell this particular story and talk about the figure it traces. 
Sure. Scott, well, really, really nice to be out here. I really uh, appreciate the invitation to come and show the film. Uh, yeah, the film is basically a portrait of a musician, uh, Ramon Chunky Sanchez, uh, who basically was very active during the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. He was um, a musician who uh, had his own band. He became very uh, connected to Cesar Chavez and the, and the farm worker movement. He was somebody that grew up actually in the farm worker community in, in Blythe, which is a small little town on the Arizona-California border. Came to San Diego in around 1970 and essentially really got involved in all of the, um, the civil rights a actions that were going on there, one of which was uh, the takeover of this, uh, this community park, which later became Chicano Park. Uh, it's a, it was a, a, a piece of land that the, um, the city and the state had promised to the community and ultimately reneged on that promise. And this led a, a huge outpouring of mostly young people, among them Chunky, to basically demand that the city, uh, that this become a park. They, they refused to allow the bulldozers to come in and, and make it into something else. And he later uh, memorialized this whole experience in one of his best-known songs called Chicano Park, where he tells the story of how Chicano Park came into being. But um, the film, basically, I, I've known, I knew Chunky really for the better. I've been in San Diego since the late 70s and met Chunky almost right away. And we crisscrossed uh, over many, many years. I had the opportunity to um, have him uh, do music for several of my films before, but always wanted to do something more with him. And basically felt that um, his story was also a way to talk about this civil right, the, the Chicano civil rights movement in particular, which I think, sadly, today, uh, not many people are that uh, aware of, as particularly young people. So I felt that this was a, an opportunity, basically, not only to do a profile of, of, of Chunky and his music, which I think, actually, his music is, is somewhat known to people, although they don't know that it's his music, but, um, but a way to tell his story and also tell the larger story of, of things that happened during the Chicano civil rights movement, hopefully, uh, something that I think will be very important for younger people. Certainly, we're very interested in getting the film out to um, to universities, colleges. I think it has a lot of uh, educational potential to to really help you know peel back this this chapter of of our larger history that um, I think is important for particularly for young people to know about today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about the film, uh, but I want to I want to turn to Ozzy for a second. So in contrast, I'm pretty new to Michigan, and I found out about you um, through um, Alicia Diaz, who we we invited last year to screen her short film on the sanctuary movement in Detroit. Um, and I was, we were talking about musicians in Detroit, and she said, "Oh, you got you got to bring Ozzy. He's he's the person to bring." And so that's that that was my introduction to you. I, I know you're well known in the community here because I've been talking to people. But again, many people might not be so familiar with your trajectory, your career as a as a musician an activist and an educator. Could you give us a little background on yourself and also a preview of what's to come in your, in your performance tonight with uh, Reconstruction? Uh, thank you, Scott. And I really want to thank you and Rocio for being on this program. Uh, I spent some years on um, public radio in Detroit, so uh, it, it's great to just be in this kind of a venue. Uh, talking about this. I, I was born in the island of Puerto Rico, but brought over really as a small child, five months old, to Corktown, which was at that point a primarily Mexican-American community. Uh, some Puerto Ricans, but not that many. And my father was a musician, and he played the 10-string guitar called El Cuatro, which is, uh, is the Puerto Rican national guitar. And so since he was the only one playing that in Detroit at that time, all the musicians would hang out in my house because they come looking for him. So I would run into these elders who, back then they were young, obviously, but who kind of kept that tradition alive. Um, uh, 
Combine that with the fact that I grew up in a church, Most Holy Trinity, Catholic Church down the street on Corktown is still there, 175 years old, by the way. There was a progressive Catholic school. And later on, I went to St. Vincent's, and their uh, priests, nuns, and teachers were very progressive. So a lot of us got involved in the movement, uh, not only because of our own conditions, but we had some very progressive teachers. Didn't know that. I thought when when I went to college and I ran into other Catholics, I said, wow, I mean, they think a lot differently than what we did. But anyway, during that time, um, growing up, you saw the power of music. Uh, because I was raised in the 60s and because the black movement was very strong in Detroit, a lot of us from the Caribbean gravitated to that. You know, we're an Afro-Hispanic people mixture, but you know, a lot of our culture is based on African traditions. So we were brought into that. Uh, and then correspondingly, there were the Brombores in Detroit and then a lot of Mexican-American activists. So I grew up in that kind of environment. And... Um, and soon found out that music was the unifying source between all of that. And so pulled out my drums and started playing as a teenager at different events. And then it wasn't until I really started getting into the history of culture, not just the performance, but the history of culture, how powerful, in particular, the bomba tradition in Puerto Rico, which is what we'll perform tonight, in building community and actually being a form of resistance against the Spanish and French plantation owners on the island of Puerto Rico, that uh, I saw, wow, this is very powerful. And I remember the first time I ever saw the bomba tradition, which is a giant circle back originally around a giant bonfire in the plantation, the coastal regions of the island. I saw that when I was six years old, when my father took us back to the plantation where he started cutting sugar cane at age 14. My uncles, one night I was six years old, took a bunch of kids and I saw the drums and the way people were interacting. That left an impression on me that I didn't understand till I was in my 20s. So uh, what we're gonna do tonight is actually present on this musical dance form uh, and community building exercise because that's what's at the heart of it uh, that is almost 500 years old and actually has enjoyed a rebirth among young people in all of the Puerto Rican communities, almost all of them that you can find in the United States. In the island of Puerto Rico, if you've seen many of the demonstrations against the governors uh, in the recent year plus, the drums are a very important part of the demonstrations. Uh, you have plena, which uses the hand drums, but also bomba drum circles. And I've been watching some of these uh, film clips about the demonstrations and cultures at the heart of it. And so kind of uh, it, it's nice to feel that in terms of my cultural upbringing, that's part of the tradition that we're just kind of showing. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you, because really music and politics are two, two pillars of the film festival programming when we make decisions. Um, and that's why you were, that's why Alicia said we need, you need to talk okay. to Ozzy. Uh, but I wanted to open it up a, just a little bit broader discussion, maybe. And you also already led us down that path. But Paul, also, I'd, I'd be interested. Um, what are your what are your thoughts about the relationship between music and politics, cinema, or culture in, in general? And in your case, uh, you have a film that's a music documentary. It's also history at the same time. Um, but what are what are your thoughts on this? 
Well, I think one of the things Ozzy said is really important, this whole idea of building community, that basically uh, culture, broadly speaking, and music in particular, is such a powerful instrument for, for building community. And that was definitely something that I saw with Chunky, you know, over and over again. I mean, basically, from, you know, from his early beginnings right through, uh, Chunky passed away about three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, sadly, but right up to the very end of his life, he was, you know, if there was some kind of, you know, uh, rally, demonstration, any kind of thing happening in the larger community. You know, Chunky was there to play his music and to use his music really as a, as a force, I think, for, for building community over and over again. And I think that, um, you know, basically the big picture, I, I guess um, some of us have some idea of the importance of music. I mean, people have some idea, for instance, of the African-American African Civil Rights Movement and, and a lot of that music that we know those songs, you know, We Shall Not Be Moved and that kind of thing, and we know the, the importance of that. But uh, in terms of the Latino experience and the Chicano experience, I don't think people know, well, first off, they don't know that much about the basic, you know, reality of what happened, much less uh, the music itself and, and the role that music played. I mean, one of the in, in the in the in the film we talk a little bit about that and one of the other uh, fellow musicians of, of Chunky who played with him in one of his bands he he talks about the fact that uh, Chavez Cesar Chavez when he did all these demonstrations that that he would never let anybody talk for too long before bringing music on mm -hmm. because he understood that music was a, a powerful and really key way of of really you know uh, getting to the hearts and souls of people and really keeping people engaged keeping people uh, you know motivated and inspired to 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 keep involved with whatever kind of social action was going on. So I think basically in terms of even and particularly I think you see that today. I mean you see a tremendous uh, outpouring of music uh, in in our community in our larger, you know, Latino whether it's Puerto Rican, Mexican American, Cuban uh, community that music continues to be a really real important uh, role in terms of the larger uh, social justice campaigns that have to be fought and are being fought, you know, all over the all over the country. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Ozzy, you have uh, some thoughts on this question? Well, one of the things, uh, thinking about my youth in the mm -hmm. 20s and 30s and when I used to love, I wasn't playing then, but I would go to all the salsa dances and, and then I started my radio work. What was real interesting is that some of the most successful commercial songs were also political, cultural reaffirmation songs. So uh, I'm reminded of Roberto Roena con los pobres, stories with the poor people I am, or Ray Barreto uh, with the album Reconstruction, which is the mm -hmm. name that we, our troop, uh, got together was really about the reconstruction of identity and his own personal journey about using arts as culture. And these were commercially successful individuals. The more I got into history, uh, the first group, music group that actually used the title Afro in their band title in the 40s, a, a period of segregation was a Cuban group led by Machito, Mar uh, Machito and Mario Bauza. They proudly said, Machito y su Afro-Cubanos. And, and, and then when you start tying those links, uh, it's like... Wow. I mean, people are dancing to these songs, singing. In fact, my band is picking up a, a tune we're going to play uh, soon. It's called Anacaona, which is the tale of a Taina chieftain who actually fought against the Spanish. And it is a commercially successful tune. I mean, almost anybody from my generation knows the words from Anacaona. And my band decided, why not? And because 
people going to dance, but at the same time, there's a story of a true Taina chieftain on the island we now call uh, Dominican Republic that successfully warded off the Spanish. Wow. I mean, the power of culture is fantastic. And it has become a figure of resistance in the yeah. Caribbean uh, literature, history, uh, Dominican Republic, and, and so on. But listening to uh, both of you, you know, and as, as a Peruvian, I grew up in Peru uh, listening to this music, and I was just talking with Osi a few minutes before um, this conversation started. One of the things I love about our music is, one, how it defines us, Yes, you know, and it 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 contributes and it helps to build an identity that never goes away, right? Regardless where in the world you are, one mm -hmm. and two. One of the things I love the most is that there is no um, uh, gaps uh, or um, uh, uh, divisions among generations. I was telling Osi that I grew up with this music. I, I started dancing to this music in family. Uh, uh, parties, you know, and dancing to the same music that my parents were dancing and my grandparents were dancing and different generations all together mm -hmm. in the same place. Mm -hmm. No, there is no division. I love that. Yeah. And that, that, and it's, it's, it's something that doesn't go away, at least in the case of our music, what I call our music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I can think about uh, reggaeton. Like every single music has this more commercialized yes. side. You know, I mean, yes. that's the case with salsa. So I don't want to present it like it was all mm -hmm. anti-something or another resistance mode. But even in reggaeton, a lot of the young people have taken some of those old songs, put, infused the bomba rhythm, which is almost 500 years old, and updated it. So a Negro Bembon is a tune that we play. We've played since our formation. And I'm talking about the band La Inspiracion. I have two groups. Yes. The Reconstruction, the Folkloric Troupe, which it will be tonight, and then a salsa and Latin jazz band called uh, La Inspiracion. But uh, it was a tune originally written in 1953 and sung as an anti-colorism. I, I was used to term racism, but within the Caribbean and most Latin societies, there's a whole range of colors. So anti-colorism, uh, discrimination tune. But that same tune was made into a reggaeton tune. So it was introducing an old message that has some deep roots in the Caribbean to a new audience. You know, and that's that goes with what you were saying, Rocio. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that it reminds me of is the, um, yeah, this intergenerational connection is really yeah. important, I think. Yeah. One thing that was really interesting to me in Chunky's uh, trajectory was uh, very early on, this is around 1973, Chunky went to Mexico City for the for the first time. He, you know, he grew up in, in fact, like, at, like many Chicanos, basically, they'd never even been in Mexico. They didn't know Mexico at all. And he went to he went to uh, to Mexico City, and he happened to go when there was this really big uh, concert of uh, protest music going on. And basically, you know, he he met some of the people there, and they found out he was a musician, and they essentially invited him to play with the at at this big concert. And it turns out it was this you know uh, he recounts you know seeing Mercedes Sosa and yes. Gabino Palomares yes. and wow. uh, yeah. a bunch of people that were really very very well known in Latin America. Uh, in terms of, you know, protest music. Yes. And I think basically Chunky really connected that to his own experience. And he connected the music that he was playing to the music that they were playing and really, you know, I think fostered actually then and throughout his career this sort of, you know, transnational perspective about, you know, that we're really, uh, that, that 
that the border doesn't divide us, that we're right. essentially part of a larger community in, you know, as, as Latino Americanos and something that was, I think, really uh, very formative in his experience. But particularly, again, the, the, the role that music played in these social movements. And of course, these were mm-hmm. musicians in Latin America that were, you know, fighting against terrible yes. conditions that were happening, you know, the dirty wars that were going yes. on in Latin America and all right. of that. But again, music was so important to yes. sort of uh, playing a role in, in political act, uh, uh, organizing, essentially, really. Yes. So that was another powerful part of Chunky's story. Yes, and these musicians, Mercedes Sosa, Pablo Milanes, Silvio Rodriguez, you know, that uh, it, I, I went to college there, so it's we all know them, right. and uh, they were. You're right. Uh, is so powerful to question and resist, and the voice of the oppressed in the dictatorships that right. unfortunately characterizes the history of Latin America right. oppression. No? Right. So and these dictators, yes. they know that. So in the case of Chile, what did Pinochet do? He went after the cultural workers yes. right away, yes. assassinated right. some of the same people we're talking about. Right. Exactly. You know, I, I do In Argentina, to, too. Yeah, in Argentina, Argentina too. throughout yeah. Latin America, right. those yes. are some of the first people they go because folks listen to them. Yes. Right. And sometimes they may not listen to a speech like they will listen to a song. Right, right, yes. exactly. No, exactly. It's very. And it's it's an over over uh, omnipresent medium, you know, to transmit your message, and well, uh, people listen to it. Yes, yeah. it's very powerful. So yes. I, I wonder too um, if we could talk a little bit about the power of uh, film festivals too. Um, so, in, as a filmmaker. Um, could you talk a little bit about you know the importance of these sorts of events and, and film festivals? We're really new and small, but yeah. uh, we're 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 doing something no. new here. Well, uh, just another hat that I wear is that I, I was part of founding the Media Arts Center of San Diego, which runs the San Diego Latino Film Festival, which is now this year, actually in the next month, we'll have our 27th annual wow. Latino Film Festival, That's which is great. a very, actually one of the longest yeah. running and very cool. successful, Amazing. really yes. big event. We have probably 150 films every year, and uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. But to your point, basically, uh, film festivals are tremendously important in terms of exposing work to audiences. I mean, sadly, the good news is that we have film festivals, and there are, you know, Chicago and Houston, and many, many cities have Latino film festivals that, you know, have been around for sometimes longer or or lesser times, but uh, those are really opportunities for people in those communities to see these films, and sadly, they probably won't see those films outside of film festivals. I mean, some of them, uh, there are some higher-profile films that will be seen perhaps on public television or might get a theatrical distribution, but that's really the exception rather than the rule. But there's so much really fine work that's being done by filmmakers, you know, all over the country, all over the continent, really. So I think film festivals are really, really important. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm really excited to be here because I can see the, just the enthusiasm that, that is going on here for the, for the festival. And again, because it's, again, you have the music, you have culture, you have cinema. These are all things that draw people together and basically also have a tremendous educational component for, for basically letting people know about other parts of the, the larger Latino experience that they may not know anything about. But mm-hmm. it's a really powerful way of getting that message across. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So I, I do want to mention that my, my eight years in San Diego 
uh, was definitely an inspiration for founding this oh, this okay. film festival. That was an event that we all looked forward to every year, and, yeah. and we went. And, and when I arrived here, we didn't have it. And I had lived in Houston before, and there was this great void. So yeah. it's one of the main reasons we're at this table today, I would say. So okay, well, excellent. You, you had no idea uh, <laughs> so many years ago that, that this would be the result, but right, that's a right. legacy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Ozzy, I, I know, too, that you, you, uh, you, you, you appreciate the importance of cultural festivals in general and in Detroit area. Can you talk about that and why? Well, let me kind of start in a, a regret in the sense that I wished in Detroit some of the work of our uh, veterans would have been documented a little bit more. And so uh, there were great, great musicians and cultural activists. For example, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, when they were there in Detroit, mm -hmm. influenced some of the folks who later on became my mentors. Uh, you know, but that is really not documented. And mm -hmm. so that you almost have, you have about 90 years of continuous cultural work in Detroit that's been significant, has had some impact on the national arena, but it's not been documented in film. And so, um, it, you know, um, it, it's, it's a regret. And in some ways, some of us have been videotaping some of the elders who in the last 10 years have have passed away in the music arena or in the culture arena, hoping that somehow, somewhere down the road, that footage could be used. And for me, that's why the power of a film and the power of a film festival was so important. And Alicia Diaz, who's the person that introduced, she's doing that in a small way about the sanctuary movement in the early 80s. And, you know, people talk about the Central Americans and, and the current difficulties, but Detroit was a key spot, a key entry point for the sanctuary movement because we border Canada. And in our own neighborhood, St. Anne's, the, what was the firmer, um, the nun house, what do they call it? They have, um, it's not rectory, but they, they call the, the, the former home of the nuns became the Freedom House. And that's where a lot of the Salvadorians, and particularly at that point, later on Guatemalans, when they escaped the Central American wars in the early 80s, ended up because the barrios really across the river, across the street from Canada. And so Alicia's documenting that. And when I've seen some of her footage, these are some of the folks that I remember being active while I was active. I wasn't involved in the sanctuary movement, but I knew the players. And they were from my, at that point, that was my parish. Yeah. yeah. And so if we could have done a little bit more to document, because it's, is a wealth of history. There's been a strong Latino community, both, uh, interesting enough, two separate Latino communities started in 1918 in Detroit, a Mexican-American one, primarily Mexican-American, not Mexican immigrant, and a separate Afro-Puerto Rican community. And, and in some ways, my desire is to link up with someone to start doing a documentary on that. And my, my own part, I've started writing some articles that may lay the foundation for someone with those skills to take it to the next step. Well, well I don't know what you're working on, Paul, but you <laughs> do work on border uh, border issues. So <laughs> Right. Well, also, I just want to emphasize, I think, the importance of documenting this. I mean, one of the things that hopefully some of our listeners or people that, you know, are involved will, will understand the importance of sitting people down and interviewing them 
because you know I, I've been doing I've been making films now for over forty years, and one of the biggest and basically on the Mexican American Chicano Latino community or the U.S. Mexico border region, and one of the biggest challenges has been like the availability of material, finding visual material, even even like the chunky film. One of the things that I did way before I ever made the film was I sat Chunky down and did a very extended interview with him. This was back in 2004, because at that point I was really concerned about his health and how long he was going to be around. And that interview was basically the spine of the film because it right. was a, you know, very, I did a really good interview with good, you know, quality uh, technology. But I think basically today it might be really important for people all over and communities all over the country to sit down some of these older people, uh, people that, you know, have lived through the experiences that Ozzy's talking about and just get some very good, you know, interviews done uh, as, as, you know, part of oral history repository for this history because, you know, when you, I mean, one of the things that I see over and over again is that basically we're not part of the official record. Basically, right. if you, if you right. look at, at a typical yeah. high school uh, social studies textbook and you look at like what is there about the, let's say, the Puerto Rican or the Mexican-American community, it's like maybe a few pages. Maybe right. there's a mention of the U.S.-Mexican War. Maybe there's a mention of, you know, the of Cesar Chavez, but there's so little. So, of course, young people, they know nothing about any right. of these experiences. And, in fact, that's constantly refrained that I've been hearing, you know, this last year we've been we've been showing the film, you know, in festivals and also in universities. And so many y young people say, you know, I never knew anything about this. I right. had no idea. So people that are actually right there, I, I had a very interesting uh, experience not too long ago where a young woman who lives right there, right near Chicano Park in, in Logan Heights in San Diego, said that she was just amazed by the film because she's lived there at Chicano Park her whole life. She had no idea right. how, how Chicano Park came into being. And that's just like a, 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 a microcosm of the experience. You know, you could go to right. you know, any place in this country and talk to young Latinos, and they would have very similar experiences. Their, 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 their stories have been erased from the official record. So it becomes really incumbent upon us or everyone to try to capture those, especially you know, older folks that are, you know, basically we're not going to be around maybe too much longer, right. to really sit people down and, and capture that history, at least in some way, and maybe you know, uh, films could be made about it, but even just the record itself could be, I think, an important repository for, for the future. Yeah. And one of the things I can add, and I'm really glad you brought this up, is technology can make it, it someone listening to this program could say, well, what can I do? Well, you can, you can film on your iPhone or your, uh, your smartphone and then save it for posterity and, and, and just have it available when the time is right and somebody can organize it. Back when I was young, we didn't have that. You really had to go the old-fashioned way. But uh, if you see something uh, that you think might be important, just film it right there and there and make sure you save it. Yeah, yeah it's a great suggestion. Yes, it's, it's, it's uh, the erasure or the invisibility of the presence because the presence is there. It's just invisible, right. you know, of, of, of these voices. It's, that's what translates into we are not in the record. We are not in the curriculum right. of, mm -hmm. of academia. Yeah, we're not, it's not been taught. Right. And therefore, uh, it's one way of doing it. I have thought about this so many years is that how do we put it in the curriculum? And then my next um, uh, thought is, well, before the college curriculum, it has to be in the K-12 curriculum. No. Oh, yeah, so it starts there in right. the K-12 curriculum. And then it goes into the college curriculum. And therefore, and because of this absence, uh, invisibility, it, it's um, it never makes it to mainstream, you know. Right. And then as devil's advocate, what happens? What would happen if it makes it to mainstream in right. the in the yeah, well, I mean, I think, future? I think it yeah. really speaks to the importance yes. of 
uh, advocacy, basically. I mean, yeah. we have to be much better advocates for our own history. Right. We have to, I mean, I think people are aware maybe that, you know, there's there's battles every year over textbooks, what gets into textbooks. Right. And basically, you know, the people that, the power structure that right. controls this, they know the importance of that, and they have done everything they can to pretty much eliminate these stories from the textbooks. Yeah. That's where, that's where you know, education is happening. I mean, that's what's available. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I think obviously we have lots of really wonderful teachers all over the country that bring in, you know, supplemental information, tell their students to go to film festivals like this mm -hmm. film festival, but still they're fighting against, you know, uh, an institutional system that basically doesn't really want them to, to, to find this other kind of material. In fact, gives them all kinds of requirements about, you know, what has to happen in the classroom. So I think we have to, we, the lar larger Latino community, we're now, you know, one in six Americans are Latinos. Right. But you would never know that if you look at the, the, you know, what's out there in terms of the national imagination. We have to be a lot better uh, advocates and, and, and fighters for our own, our own stories and getting our own stories into, into the media, into the schools, into, you know, wh wherever, wherever we can, because that that's part of you know building building a political uh, campaign basically a larger political campaign. Can I share a story about curriculum development? You know, since the '60s, late '60s, but definitely through the '70s and '80s, a lot of activism in Detroit, uh, both in the African American community and Latino community. And through my work, I uh, got funded by Detroit Council of the Arts to develop a curriculum. K to 12 on Latin music and its importance. And this was the broad piece. Uh, and it uh, got funded, got developed, Detroit Council of the Arts, which was at that time under the rather progressive administration of Coleman Young. People may have some negative things to say about, but he really supported the arts. And with Detroit Public Schools, the person who oversaw curriculum, primarily from an Afrocentric uh, point of view, was very open to that curriculum. Fast forward, soon before it became uh, part of what they would consider, the state came in and took over DPS, Detroit Public Schools, and yeah. that was that. And so you have to also think that there's been a legacy of struggle, but that we've had some setbacks too. Yes. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, it, it speaks to part of the mission of the film festival. You know, we're at an educational institution at Michigan State, and also with great ties to the community. But the educational component that you mentioned is very intentional, but it's also a way for us uh, to do what we can um, to, to think about education and pedagogy and um, what counts as, as history as well uh, through through this vehicle of the film festival. So, yes, and it helps to bring exposure yeah, to absolutely. all what Ossie and, and Paul are saying, exposure of the Latino uh, life com uh, experience, what we are and what we can be, and um, beyond exotic. Because Absolutely. that's one of the things I find in my yeah. classes, you know, when I teach about, I yes. teach about Latin American culture, not Latino, but mm -hmm. it's, it's the first thing I have to work with my students is let's think beyond exotic right. and right. stereotype, you right. know, it's so. Yeah, and, and I think that, I think the, so what, one film is difficult to fight against that, but when you, when yeah. you have a, when you have a, a bunch of films together over yes. an yes. extended period of time, all of a sudden that, it becomes normal in a sense, you yes. know, like it's not exotic. And that's the for, goal. Right, exactly. That's the, exactly. the, the goal in the long run. In the long yes. run, yeah, yes. at every edition of the festival and then over the, over the long course yes. of, of the history of the festival as well. Mm -hmm. yes.
And that you can present it in a multifaceted exactly. way. So I was thinking about last night watching the, the short films around immigration. Well, the power of it, as was mentioned by a lot of those who attended and why I felt, was that there were different aspects about the immigration issue. Right. And it just like gave it humanized it because each piece did it, but it gave a more comprehensive view of the humanity issue. Exactly, exactly. Yes, I teach a class, an undergraduate class, in which I ask this question. It's, it's like a, it's a, it's a survey question, it's a tricky question too, because I want to test um, the stereotypes that are in the heads of my students before we start the course. And the question is very simple. You listen to two people speaking Spanish in the cafe, in the restaurant, wherever, you know, here in Michigan. What are the possibilities that they are illegal immigrants? Illegal immigrants. And the answer, I'm not gonna discuss it here, but the answer is um, breathtaking, mm -hmm. yeah. So, I, I would like to share one yes. thing that, I, that makes me think about. Um, so this is the second edition of the festival. It's the second time that we've printed our programs at, at Office Depot. And both times, the person who I've paid um, got curious when they saw what they were handing over. I was picking up the programs uh, this time. And, and I explained what the festival was, and then we, we switched to Spanish just briefly, accidentally, sort of, and then, and then he kept speaking, and so we just had a conversation in Spanish. And it felt like it was the first time that it happened to him at Office Depot. He was so happy about it. Uh, and this was that we picked up the programs the day of the opening reception in the morning, and uh, he showed up to the opening oh, reception. Wow. And it happened nice. the first time as well. Um, there's a real need within our community here in the, Lansing, greater, the greater Lansing community for something like this for people who feel very isolated. I had students come up to me uh, yesterday just to thank you know thank me for for this festival because they they they're from Western Michigan where there's a big migrant community. Right. When they moved to Lansing and came to MSU, they felt just totally alone and isolated. So it's really a breath of fresh air for a lot of people in the community. You know. Uh Young people are hungry for this. So mm -hmm. a lot yes. of times we do bomba in grade school and in high school. And my nephew, when he was younger, would often then do, uh, uh, at that time, whatever rap song or hip-hop song was really cool at point. But we would do it to bomba rhythms. And particularly the Latin kids, but all kids would just like, and then he would explain, he would say, you know this song, and actually start singing it, and then we would play the drum beat, and it was like, and, and basically what we were telling him, this is not new, mm. we're just interpreting new, and but it's built in that tradition that your ancestors were part yes. of. Yes, yes. Yeah. Scott, would you like to wrap up? Uh, sure, I'll just wrap up with an uh, encouragement uh, for people to come out and to not only uh, participate, hopefully, in, in the performance tonight and to see uh, Paul's film on Sunday, um, which I would like to say is going to be at Celebration Cinema Lansing. Um, we'll be there from at, starting at 1 p.m. We have three great films for that closing day program, um, and Paul's closing the film uh, at 5, 5 p.m. Those tickets are five dollars. Um, what time? What time is the film again? Five p.m. Five p.m. Okay. Um, and those tickets are five dollars. They are available for advance purchase on our website under the reservations tab. Very important uh, because we don't want people to be disappointed on the day of the event. But in addition to seeing and participating, hopefully you also have the chance to meet both of these. Uh, Wonderful people we're very thankful to have with us today um, and through the festival on Saturday at our meet and greet at Casa de Rosado at 2.30 in the afternoon. So please join us. Yeah, thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Oh, yes. Fantastic. 
Well, Thank unfortunately, you. all good things come to an end, and it's time to conclude this conversation about Latinx music and cinema at the heart of Michigan. We invite you to attend the 2020 MSU Latinx Film Festival today, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at various locations, like the Theater of the Residential College in Arts and Humanities and the MSU, what, the MSU Libraries was yesterday, but the, many people have asked me, Scott, if the virtual reality show, is, is it going to be available for... It was available yesterday. Just yesterday? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Many people have been asking me about that. And um, also, uh, the Lansing Public Media Center and the Robin Theater on Saturday and Celebration Cinema in Lansing on Sunday. Uh, tonight, February 14th, Valentine's Day, we are looking forward to Reconstruction and Osi Rivera at 8 p.m. in the theater, the Arca Theater in our campus, uh, which performance is followed by a short film program dedicated to the traumatic legacy of Hurricane Maria. And don't miss Paul Espinosa's singing Our Way to Freedom this Sunday, February 16th at Celebration Cinema in Lansing. For more information about the work of Paul and Ozzy and the schedule, the schedule of the film festival, visit msulatinxfilmfestival.com. Scott, would you like to add something? Yes. I think I got the time of your film yes. incorrect. I think oh. it's 6 p.m. So please check the website. We have an app also that you can get, and you can keep up with any updates as well. Okay. So I want to thank our, our guests for being here today. And... Um, cold but very heartwarm Michigan. Uh, Paul, Ossie, and Scott, I speak for many when I say that I'm looking forward to enjoy tonight and the next days of uh, the second edition of the Latinx Festival. Thank Gracias. you for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. Thanks, with you. And last but not least, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. I also thank our technical producer, Daniel Trego, and Dante. Tune in for our next podcast.